Welcome to The Brew, a podcast series which deep dives into trending topics about business and culture. Now sit back and join in on the conversation over a cup of freshly brewed coffee. How's everyone doing? Uh, my name is Luis. I am joined by Professor Richie and Nikhil. Uh, so we have to start on a bit of a, of a little asterisk here. You might notice that um, Val is not with us. That is because he is having a bit of a medical thing happening right now. Um, so He's doing fine though. He's doing fine. He's, yeah, he's, he doesn't have COVID. He's, he's not like Nikhil a couple weeks ago where he was riddled with COVID, <laughs> thankfully. I didn't have COVID. He, you maybe you did. <laughs> he might have been uh, asymptomatic. Um, so th- thankfully, he's fine. Um, he's resting. He may or may not join us for uh, un- overrated, underrated, um, but I'm not counting on it. So uh, it's just going to be us three having a nice casual conversation uh, about a really exciting topic that, funny enough, uh, this is kind of Val's bread and butter. <laughs> and instead, he's going to come to me, the guy who's been giving him a lot of grief for how often he brings up uh, blockchain. Um, but we're going to be talking about uh, emerging trends in tech as well as uh, blockchain in general, and then more specifically, uh, blockchain in regards to voting, which I don't know if you can tell, but I dropped off my ballot yesterday. Um, I voted by mail. Um, yeah, go vote. I think I think we said we're going to talk about this every single at the beginning and end of every show. But uh, if you're in California, early voting has started. It started as of the 5th, I believe. Um, uh, you can go vote in person at your uh, voting registrar's office right now. Uh, or you can drop off your ballot if you have a provisional or if you um, have a mail-in ballot. So make sure you do that. Um, your voice counts. If Make sure you make plans for it. If you don't know where your polling place is, it's a quick Google. Um, just look up, like literally just Google polling place near me or uh, where can I drop off my ballot? And there's a wealth of information there on how to do that. Um, okay, I think I think I'm all good on the introduction there. So without further ado, Professor Rich. Hello, glad uh, to be here. <laughs> glad please, to have you. Please tell us about yourself and how you got started in IS and tech. Cool. So my name is Rich Yue, and I believe in meaning over content. So this underlies everything that I do. I produce experiences that help people expand their perspectives. And you can call me a designer. My official title is Assistant Professor of Teaching and Information Systems, UC Riverside. How I got started in tech is like how many people got started in tech, just fiddling around um, old computers at home. Video games is a big one um, to say, how do things work, right? So uh, the computer, how does it work? Or this device, how does it work? And eventually I got into this kind of rhythm of like, not necessarily building things, but creating things. And then I said, what is the major or what is the concentration where I can go and build things? Not so much in a civil engineer sense, but more of a device thing sense. And so that was information systems. And then, Throughout my academic career, I've studied some form of information systems. So in undergrad, it was called computer information technology. Um, grad school is called software management. And then PhD, it was called management information systems. And then now here at UCR, we call it IS or information systems. And then in between um, grad school and PhD, had some work experience at Yahoo, back when Yahoo was Yahoo. 
<laughs> not what it is today, like Verizon or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I still have my, my mm. Yahoo account that sure. I just yeah. shove all of my your, things. Your yeah, yeah, my yeah. Burner, exactly. My burner account. Yeah. Um, no, man, that's, that's super interesting. Honestly, like the, especially kind of knowing, I think what kind of got you interested mm -hmm. in, in the whole thing and how it was just kind of this fascination um, with tech and with kind of what seems like just kind of tinkering and just yep. being interested in the whole thing as in general, yep. which is, yeah, man, I think that's kind of how, how everybody kind of gets going. I mean, you had the interest with like UI UX, I had the interest with brains and you have the interest with tech. Mm -hmm. I'm actually, uh, I found your designer analogy really interesting. Mm -hmm. Like what do you more specifically, what type of designer would you call yourself? Experience design. Experience so, design. So yeah, UX. Okay. Um, and I don't say this as like a formal UX designer, mm -hmm. but um, in the sense that I design experiences. Like right? of like classes yeah. and... So uh, a lot of people know me from class and mm -hmm. um, they mostly can say that class is kind of like an experience, yeah. right? Yeah. It's not just me throwing information at you and saying, repeat this information back to me. Right. We'll work on a lab, we'll do some live coding, something like that to make it more of an experience. And especially now with the COVID times, mm -hmm. uh, I tell my students, you know, if we're here on Zoom, if I'm taking time out of 300 people's days to be here on Zoom, I want to make it meaningful, Oh yeah. right? So we'll do something where um, it's relevant that we are all synchronous and then that way they can get more meaning out of this class. Totally. Yeah, I think that's awesome because I think when people think of like UX and stuff, it's mostly like in terms of like apps or websites and yeah. stuff, but mm -hmm. there's like, the, there's experience in everything in our lives and yeah. everything that we do. And I totally agree. I think the classroom experience is incredibly important, um, especially in these days. And yeah, I've obviously I haven't been a part of those um, post COVID era, like college classes and stuff, but I've heard some nightmare scenarios and mm -hmm. then I've also heard some great scenarios um, from like professors like yourself who yep. are taking the effort to make sure that their students are learning and um, are actually gaining value out of um, this experience. Mm -hmm. And I saw a meme a few days ago uh, comparing UI and UX, so user interface and user experience. Yeah. UI is the ketchup bottle in a glass bottle. Right. And then UX is the upside down plastic squeeze bottle. So both of these are ketchup, but one has a better experience. One oh, is yeah. designed yeah. for that experience. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, so I want to really be an upside down squeeze bottle ketchup of UCRIS. <laughs> my my <I'm> trademark. <laughs> my favorite real life example is the banana. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like comparing two types of bananas, but basically it's literally my favorite fruit. And I realize it's because of the experience. Mm -hmm. It's like I can take it anywhere I want to. I can drive with it. I don't have to put it in the fridge. All I have to do is peel it. And the peel is like my little wrapper too. So if I'm, usually if I'm eating an apple, I might need a napkin to like clean stuff up, stuff up right? And yep. um, the color on the outside also kind of tells you like, oh, it's getting bad yep. or you can't eat it. So, yeah. I don't think I've ever heard anybody have such like fond <laughs> things to say about a fruit. That's actually really nice. I gave that analogy in a in a webinar once, and I think it was well received. So I'm just it, it was well it. received here. <laughs> I, was, I, I enjoyed it. I a think webinar for Mario Kart fans. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You didn't talk about the fact that if you're if you have an enemy, you could just yes toss a banana peel and there's they're they're gone. Yep. Yeah. You, you may yeah. or may not be involved in manslaughter, but you know it's a good fruit. Um. So kind of touching on that. Uh, in regards to like classes and how you're designing stuff, mm. which I think honestly is like super cool that you're not just trying to uh, do it. You know, you're not just tr you're not just trying to like 
oh, oh crap. I have to design these classes. I have to design these courses and just like put something out there. That's literally just like what you would do, mm-hmm. um, in a live person, you, you acknowledge the, that what's happening right now is different. And you, you're acknowledging that because of that, it needs to be designed in a way that makes sense for it. Yep. Um, so I think that's really cool. Um, and I, I one thing that I kind of want to talk a little bit about, um, is this kind of idea of like curriculum, mm-hmm. right? Like talking about, um, kind of what you're bringing to UCR when you think about this design aspect, right? You right. think of like, how am I designing um, IS courses mm-hmm. that make sense, not just for um, what's happening right now, um, but how are you designing courses that's going to, that are going to allow students five, 10, 15 years from now to at least have a, an understanding of a basic fundamental um, of, of kind of what they need. Mm-hmm. I know that you talked about you're teaching a Python class. Yep. Um, it's something that I wish I had taken mm-hmm. when I was in school in a school setting because yeah. trying to learn it now, it's awful. Um, not having that kind of guide. Right. Um, but I want to get your understanding on it. What, what sort of, what goes through your mind when you're designing new curriculum, when you're thinking ahead, mm-hmm. um, on what's going to benefit people down the line? Yeah. So one thing I tell all my students is what problem are you solving? Mm-hmm. Right. The company mm-hmm. is not hiring you just to do something. They're hiring you to solve a problem. And this is where I draw the distinction between do and create. So if you're just doing something, doing something would be like go outside and like clean the roses. But if you're creating something, then you're creating, you know, a bouquet for a wedding or a flower arrangement for a birthday, right? So um, we want our students to be able to go out and create and not just do. So coming back to the curriculum then, is how can I design a curriculum or what needs to go into this curriculum so that students can go out and solve problems, right? And actually create things. And um, one major problem that we face at UCR, but many other schools face, and this is something that I came up with, is called the 20-year problem, or now even the 30-year problem, in that many IS classes, they were designed 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. right, or 20 years ago, when some of these topics were relevant and then they just never changed. Like the older professor gave it to the new guy and then uh, the new guy gives it to the new girl, right? It just keeps going on and on. Yeah. And once you get rooted in that structure and you try to change things, then people get mad. They're like, oh, I created that course like 20 or 30 years ago, right? Like you can't, you can't drop that course. And so you're kind of stuck in this curriculum. Here at UCR, um, we are both fortunate and unfortunate to not have um, such a large curriculum like that. So we have kind of a blank slate or more agile approach to say, what are the courses we can bring in in the next you know, one to two years or two to three years, depending on the paperwork, um, so that our students can create things. And then when you approach it from a creation problem or a what problem can I solve approach, then you can bring in like emerging technologies, right? To say, maybe these are not relevant right now. Mm-hmm. Many of them are, but maybe they're not relevant right now, but in five years, Right. As Apple keeps mm-hmm. pushing LiDAR, then AR is going to be relevant. So mm-hmm. you can continue to solve problems five years down the road. Um, AI, five to 10 years. Right. Then you can continue to solve problems down the road. And one good thing about IS, I call it a good thing, is that the, the curriculum is always changing. Yep. All right. So my Python class from this year, spring 2020, was different than my Python class from spring 2019. Uh, and then maybe in five to seven years when there's a new hot language, right? I can just put that into the curriculum, right? So we're always thinking about how can students go out and solve problems and create things. Yeah, I I think that 
a, a lot of things I definitely want to like touch on when it comes to IS and, and this idea of that you kind of brought up where it's like courses oftentimes are designed by that person who was there 15 years ago, 30 mm -hmm. years ago, um, or at least there is a massive hold right. kind of in that era, you know, like where maybe not all of the curriculum is, is necessarily attached to that person mm -hmm. um, or that time, but a majority of it is, whether it's through theory or fundamentals, whatever it might be, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing that I like kind of what you said is the fact that, you know, your course this year is different than your course was last year, right. which is something that um, I think is noble. Like it's, it's something that you're constantly looking at, constantly evolving, because at the end of the day, especially within your field, mm -hmm. it's something that is constantly changing. Yep. It's, and the fact that you're acknowledging that, you know, right now, right now, because of LIDAR, mm -hmm. um, AR technology definitely isn't as adopted as maybe some companies want it to be right but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to be adopted mm -hmm. down the future when um those kind of sensors and that kind of technology gets a lot cheaper to actually produce yeah um i mean you even think about like vr um i think i i personally am of the mindset that ar is going to be a lot bigger than vr mm -hmm. um just because of the um the way the way that the ways that it can be adopted mm -hmm. yeah um <laughs> But like you look at VR, mm -hmm. when you start, you have now, back in the day, you, when you, well, back in the day, when you have like the Virtual Boy, I guess if yeah. you want to go there, you know, yeah. you have like the Virtual Boy and that was like, that was Nintendo 30 years too soon. Yeah. Um, which I hope that Nintendo brings back the Virtual Boy. That's just me personally. Mm -hmm. But you look at technologies like even in like t four years ago with uh, the HTC Vive, um, early Oculus, mm -hmm. uh, the, they were clunky, they were big. There wasn't really a lot of, streamlinedness to it they were expensive yeah um whereas now um you have like what i think the oculus quest 2 mm -hmm. which is entirely mobile powered um it can exist on its own no wires nothing um and it puts up numbers equal if not greater to um vr machines that were around two years ago three years ago mm -hmm. um one year ago honestly if you look at it that way um i think the technology is, is getting affordable and it's getting better and it's stuff like that is going to just happening, whether it's Moore's law or whatever you kind of want to look at it that way. Mm -hmm. um, and having your perspective where it's some, it's constantly evolving, it's constantly changing and you have to adapt with the actual technology is fantastic. Yeah. Um, we've talked about this before uh, in the past uh, when it comes to like uh, the marketing degree and stuff like that, where it's like all this stuff that's taught is a lot of it's kind of antiquated mm -hmm. um, in theory, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Um, and I, it doesn't have that new approach. Whereas, like, if I wanted to get into advertising, my route would be go into marketing. Yep. Uh, go into marketing, get a degree there, and, and actually learn it. Whereas, if I really wanted to be competitive in marketing and advertising, I'm better off going with IS because I know how to create these ML systems um, that are going to allow me to create predictive models that are killer for an actual agency. Yep. Whereas, I'm not just going out there and picking the roses. I'm going out there and I'm actually making the bouquet right now. Um, so I, I like the analogy that you created there, and I, I think it's it's fantastic that you're looking at it in that perspective when it comes to new curriculums and, and everything like that. Yeah, a lot of this comes down to the traditional educational model, where you know this was for the post-war, post-U.S. war, um, factory workers, mm -hmm. and you had one smart person in the middle of the room or at the front of the room saying, "Here's everything I know," or "Here's everything you need to know about this topic." and then repeat it back to me on a test and then go out into the factories and then just do things. Yeah. Yeah. And here, you know, especially in IS, like I don't know everything 
there is to know about IS. Yeah. Like even in a Python class, you know, I could tell you everything you need to know about Python 2.6, but now we're on Python 3.7, right? I don't, I still don't know everything. So um, once you understand that, then you can kind of say, okay, let's then reframe our curriculum to not tell students everything that there is to need to know because we can't do that, right? Let's give them the mindset to be able to use this information, use all this readily inf- readily available information to go out and um, create things, solve problems. So do you um, do you administer a lot of tests in your classes or? For most of my, so for my two core classes, I do three quizzes. Okay. And then um, the large part of the grade is gonna be a project okay. where you create something. Yeah, I think that's very valuable too. Like we were just talking about mm-hmm. uh, the GIS class. I took it with a different professor, but I think what stood apart about that class versus the other ones that I took was that it was very project-based mm-hmm. and I was actually getting to use this software, use this program and understand how it worked and figure out how I can use it in real life applications. I still talk to people about it today, mm-hmm. even though I'm not actually like using it because I actually understood why it's so valuable yep. versus having to, I, like, I guess, memorize a ton of words and then regurgitate it and then forget it. That's yep. usually what happened. So, and I'm sure you've been in the same boat too. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. I, I, I oftentimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think when it, when it comes down to it as well, I mean, I, one question I want to ask you mm-hmm. kind of picking your brain a little bit is if would, how would you design like a series of courses? Like if you had, if you were looking at someone full full on four year person um right. they let's say they're coming in pre-business as well right let's let's say you, you have them for all four years um how, what what and you're going with is mm-hmm. how what would that look like because i know right now undergrad how many classes are you teaching three to four three to four yeah um 101 is one of them that's just information systems the kind of general one through nine that we have to kind of yep, go through the core um python and then database okay and then this year also gis gotcha okay yeah nice um would, would do you think that doing it the way you're doing it now makes sense or would you rather do something that's more sequential it's a question that we brought up to jonathan as well yeah. where it was it was like would do you think right now the way it's going is something that you're more so working in the sandbox that you're given mm-hmm. um as opposed to working in an optimal kind of situation yep Right now, it's very much a sandbox, given that um, UCR has had some problems um, with not having a full-time faculty member, right? Mm-hmm. So traditionally, lectures. And um, I would think of a series as kind of what you guys talked about in um, Jonathan's episode of, like, connect classes to each other. Mm-hmm. So right now, classes are very siloed. You can take yeah. one class and then not use any of that in another class, right? And it, that's just not for IS. It's for many you know, right. curriculums, yeah. uh, curricula around campus. So uh, what I would do is maybe start with 101. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I've tried to push for is to move all the core classes like up front. So if we do get this four-year major, take 101 and all your one through nines up front first two years, yeah. right? So that you can have this foundation to pursue the rest of your concentration right and then for something like a series let's say that you would start with python programming Mm -hmm. so maybe one beginner course and then one advanced course kind of like in accounting yeah and then from there go into ai ml something like that and then end with some sort of like capstone kind of like engineers or designers have right so here's this capstone ai or ml project 
um, use all of your knowledge from core classes, Python, everything like that to go through that. And then uh, I believe you talked about it in Jonathan's episode, but having some sort of like series or tracks, right? right? Yeah, so right. not just I'm an IS concentration, but I am a, you know, AI ML person or mm -hmm. I'm a data viz person, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think stuff like that's important because what you end up getting in, in instead of that mm -hmm. is, and I know that you did it as well, where like you kind of, you are, um, you graduate with one degree, but you know, you know that you basically could have also graduated with, with another one because you basically only took classes in two majors. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like some people, it's, um, they're of the mindset where it's just like, this is my concentration, I'm mm -hmm. gonna do this concentration, and then I'm just gonna just close my eyes and throw a, a throw a dart at a board and see what it, what it sticks to, and that's the class I'm gonna take besides this, because it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, whereas with myself, and, and Nicole, you can speak on this as well, is I did marketing, obviously, because I wanted, I think that it's interesting, but I also could have just as easily signed up to do management mm -hmm. if I wanted to. Um, but I think having it in, in the way that you're saying, where it's like, yes, I'm graduating with IS, I understand that, but I'm actually sp specifically going towards, you know, machine learning. I'm going to be like, um, you, whatever it is, like someone that just creates predictive models, mm -hmm. whatever have you. Um, I think that's a lot more interesting and a lot more fulfilling I think at the end of the day than like me where I have to be like yeah I have a marketing degree but I'm really interested in like consumer psychology so I took a lot of management classes too but technically it's not on my paper and if I was to apply to a job no one's gonna know that yeah you know whereas with what you're saying it's something that's very tangible it's something that's very uniquely you mm -hmm. in the sense of what what it is that you actually end up wanting to go towards and I, I think that's um, something that in my opinion works out a lot better yeah for for students yeah yeah, no, I, I really like what you said about pushing the core classes back. Uh, we, we do have that pre-business program right now, and I'm sure it's there for specific reasons. Mm -hmm. But I think while it works in certain ways, I think what I ran into was like the only business class I took was Business 20 for like the first two years, mm -hmm. basically. And I, I, I think I always knew I wanted to do marketing with like tech, which is how I ended up choosing IS. But for many people... It's like they they don't really know what they want to do in business they just know they want to do business and they have to wait like two years to be able to decide that so that's like one thing for sure and then i think like on a more like personal level i think like right now my career is in ux ui mm -hmm. i i would have loved to be able to have like some sort of track where it's like kind of taking the marriage of marketing marriage of um information systems and go down this user experience ux track basically yeah and um learn all about that and be prepared for it in the real world whereas i think when, once i got into that real world in like an actual job and stuff i felt a lot more lost and stuff because um there wasn't a lot of that like practical knowledge that i was able to take out of that university experience basically right yeah 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 um i think at the end of the day it, it's kind of along the lines of what you're saying um when it comes down to getting the actual experience that you want to get out of the whole thing and instead you're kind of like trapped in this kind of self-made box of this is what's on paper, this is what you gotta do, and then the rest is you kind of are going, oh crap, I have to figure this out, and I have to do it quick, and I have to do it in a way that still kind of keeps you, you, in, in what you wanna do and what you've kind of learned in the past. Yeah. You may have heard about like the T model of breadth versus depth, right? So you kind of generalize uh, breadth-wise, and then you go specialize depth-wise. Yeah, go niche, and then 
Um, what I recommend, what a lot of recruiters are starting to recommend is go niche right away, right? So I call it the inverted T model. Mm. Go niche and then solve a specific problem for that company or mm. solve a specific problem just in general. Because if you are just solving a general problem, most likely the, computer, the company can hire someone to do that, outsource it or automate it, right? So they don't actually yeah. need to hire you. If you can solve a niche problem, if you can solve a specific problem, they're going to say, we want this person. We need this person, mm -hmm. right? And then once you niche down, then you can begin to generalize around that niche. Interesting. So so it's you're kind of a jack of all trades, but in within your actual niche. Uh, yeah, I would niche first and then be more of a, a generalist. So okay. uh, re in recruiter speak, this is the utility unicorn versus the experienced expert. Okay. So companies don't want to hire a utility unicorn because if you're um, doing everything, then you're really good at nothing, right? <laughs> yeah. So you want to be good at one thing yeah. to say, you need me for this you know, role or whatever yeah. and niche down, solve that problem. And then around that niche, then you can begin to generalize. So let's say you are like the specific um, you know, Python person or JavaScript person, right? Niche down, solve that problem, and then begin to generalize and then go into full stack or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a different, I honestly, I prefer that approach way more than the approach that I was kind of given when it comes down to school and everything like that, where it's just like, you have to know everything about marketing. Here's like everything that you need to know, yep. learn it. And it's like, okay, I, I know marketing now. And then it's just like, okay, cool. Now go work for a company. And it's like, oh, all right, I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. It's like, I, <laughs> it's like I, I, all right. And then they just give you a project to work on and you're like, all right, time to Google it. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yep. <laughs> That's totally my experience. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun experience. Don't get me wrong. It, it definitely uh, prepares you for the real world and the hard knocks and mm -hmm. everything like that. But uh, I think it'd be a little bit better if I went in ex knowing exactly what problem I was solving, yep. um, as opposed to just kind of getting thrown into a pit of fire yep. and hoping that I can escape it. Yep. So is that something you're trying to implement right now or is that something that you'd hope to implement? Yeah, I'm trying to implement it. It's gonna take quite a while, um, more so than the two to three years it takes to create a course because yeah. we're gonna have to create a series of courses and then um, our business school in general is trying to fight for the four year major. Okay. So nice. students can come directly into School of Business, and then that way they can take their core classes early on and then begin to specialize. Would would uh, UCR be the first one to do of the UCs to do a four-year business program? That I don't know. Because I that's feel a, like that's so... Yeah, like, why know, not? I know Berkeley has pre-biz, and then I think UCI has the same too. Yeah. And then no other UC has business. business. Yeah, because that just, at least for me, mm -hmm. I, it's kind of a no-brainer to make yep. it a four-year thing just because mm -hmm. um, you're cramming hard yep. in those two years. Yep. Like uh, pre-business kind of gets away with three years depending on where you are mm -hmm. um, just because I think the quarter prior to their third year, they can start taking classes. Mm -hmm. um, but like when I first went there, it was like, it was, an, it was a mess. Yeah. Like uh, when I transferred over, it was like fighting for classes, making sure you had your classes, making sure that you had everything lined up and it's this sort of, um, okay, you just transferred in, you took your, or you took your breath courses. Cool. Now, Hey, you have to figure out in about, uh, I don't know, 30 seconds, what you want to do, uh, what you want to do as a career. Yep. Um, and I think that that is, uh, not a good position to be in to say the least, uh, especially for someone who maybe is a bit younger 
um, and doesn't necessarily understand what it is that they want to do mm-hmm. and just kind of has this, maybe I want to do that. I yeah. don't really know. Yeah, I, th- I think one thing I'll always be a little upset about is that my lowest grade at UCR was in a breath course for basically studying insects and I just had to memorize <laughs> a bunch of insect terminology. Lowest grade at UCR. I'm still kind of upset about it. Do you remember anything? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, that's in Wolf. There's your breath. That's why you got a low grade. You have no one to blame but yourself. Hey, <laughs> it goes back to what I was saying earlier about kind of just like memorizing, having to regurgitate it and then yeah. like forget it after, you know? It's like, what yeah. am I going to do with this insect information, yeah. right? It, it is one of the reasons why... Um, I did not major in psychology and instead went to business was because like you have to memorize a bunch of stuff you basically have to memorize whether it's like specific people um, whether it's specific theories theories. you have all it is is just remember it remember it remember it and then it's this weird mentality of like okay now don't challenge that like that is the theory that's where you're kind of at as opposed to a business where I think it's a bit I don't want to say it's like it's a thinking person's uh, kind of thing but it's and especially like engineering and things like that where it's like no here's kind of how we're doing it now Mm -hmm. um but there's a multitude of ways to do it yeah i think that's and we don't know that this is the right way to do it exactly right it's just the way that we're doing it right now exactly which again that's that's why i went business route and not the psychology route because Mm -hmm. i couldn't do it I, i i love psychology but i could not for the life of me be that kind of person like where it's just memorization regurgitation i have to see the theory understand the theory and then practice the theory right so does a four-year business degree basically like eliminate breath courses or just minimizes them a lot and lets you take more business courses i think it would minimize them Mm -hmm. and then here's where i'm fully unqualified to speak on this but that's our favorite kind of speech actually you know that's why i'm here (laughs) um but i think right now it's mostly a political battle sure because our pre-business students they go to chess so if we get a four-year yes. major in school of business, then Chas is like, well, we lose two years of students. Yeah. And then a lot of our um, students who don't get into business, they just transfer over to Chas. So yeah. Chas gets this like yeah. foot in the door of like retaining students. And so really that's, um, from from what I've heard, this is what it comes down to. It's just a political battle. Can we all just get along? Yeah. No, it, it's, all, it's all a big Game of Thrones episode yeah. at the end of the day. And you'll see a lot of business schools, they're trying to move to the four-year major because yeah. everyone knows it's like the right thing to do mm. um, as you would apply to, you know, like psychology or something like that to where you can apply directly into school of business. Um, but they're all fighting their own political battles. Yeah. Yeah. To uh, A lot to be said, I think, about reform within education as a whole mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day. And I think it's something that um, the three of us, I, I think Val definitely is the more like rah-rah cheerleader for educational reform. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's room for, for a lot of things to happen. And we've talked about this in the past mm-hmm. about like thinking about not just reforming the traditional four-year or the traditional two-year uh, universities and colleges, but thinking about ways to have options um and kind of kind of going from there um we brought we talked we talked about this a little bit but like having like online places like coursera or mm-hmm. um you know we're looking at like a skillshare or master class or something like that or taking like a boot camp um i recently just read an article like two days ago about um how a lot of like schools are now looking at like uh coursera specifically as like a big threat mm-hmm. like now it's like finally starting to like dawn on them that like some employers are looking at um, Coursera degrees, if you want to call them certificates and degrees, yep. um, as viable options now. 
um, because they a lot of big tech firms have removed um, the need for a college degree mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So it's just like, oh, if you know what you're doing, then you know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, even um, in the article that I read, they talked about how and I brought this up again, but it was like the Google machine learning course that they have for free is if you have that and you complete that, you actually get put on like a on like Google's radar of yep. like, oh, you're somebody who very directly knows what we need and how we're doing it yeah. internally. You're in the talent pool. Exactly. You're yep. already in the talent pool. Um, and that already puts you in a, in a, a way better position as, as opposed to maybe an engineering student who just studied it yeah. and then applies for that job. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, I think there's a, there's a big room and a big gap that needs to be filled. I'm kind of curious on like what your what your take is on that, like the Corsairs or like companies that are like literally just saying like, eh, actually, if you're good at it, we'll take you and we don't need to worry about uh, necessarily formal education, um, though some places like like if you want to do like a director position or something like that, mm-hmm. like you need that master's. Yeah. 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 I think Coursera is a good option. Uh, one thing to keep in mind with Coursera is that unlike something like Udemy, where it's just, you know, a person creating a class, mm-hmm. these are actual courses designed by colleges and universities. Right. And a lot of them run concurrently on the ground campus and also on Coursera. So while you don't get the official university certificate, mm-hmm. you are getting an actual university level class. And depending on the type of employer that you are, you might say, hey, that's good enough, yeah. right? To say, um, for example, the most uh, popular Python course on Coursera is from University of Michigan, which is a great engineering school. Mm-hmm. So an employer might see this and say, okay, you learned Python from University of Michigan, that's good enough, right? And then we can teach you whatever else you need to know on the job. Yeah, I think it's something that's interesting, especially, I mean, all of us are of the mindset of like constantly learning. Like, Nikhil, I know you're looking up um, like uh, UI UX. Like boot camps and stuff. Boot camps and everything like that to constantly keep learning. I'm putting myself through torture right now. Um, Where where are you learning your course? Completely, like, we're talking like, so I'm doing. Oh my gosh, I always forget the website. I have it loaded up right here. He doesn't even remember where he's learning it from. <laughs> I think that tells a lot. Are you actually like... Yeah, I have, I have, the, the, bo- you, I have, just... I have the bookmarks. <laughs> Kaggle. Kaggle is... is okay, Kaggle, yeah. Yeah, so... I haven't heard of that. Yeah, you're not in the know. <laughs> Kaggle, Kaggle is where I'm learning Python. They don't offer any insect classes on Kaggle? No, no, insect, no insect classes on Kaggle. They might, I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where <clears> I'm doing most of the stuff. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to like... If, if something like kind of opens up, mm-hmm. you know, like what, what, what is like that tipping point for a lot of people, whether it's monetarily, whether it's ease of access, like I'm, I'm wondering when, when these services just like become like a duh moment yep. for people. And I don't know, I think it's me just like speaking into the wind right now. It's like, where is that tipping point? I think everybody is different. Um, but I also think that there is a lot of room, um, for a lot of different options right now that are happening within tech. I'm gonna bring in an idea. This is from Professor Scott Galloway at NYU. He's a professor of brand strategy. And he's looked a lot at uh, education reform and how we can adapt with the times. And it's especially meaningful because he's in academia. So he's like speaking from the inside. And he has his idea to say, um, wouldn't it be nice if like Google created their own classes or Apple created their classes and then partnered with an institution mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. MIT mm-hmm. or Stanford, right? Yeah. So that you get the content knowledge and the experience from these companies um, that are 
actually using this material in the world. Mm -hmm. And then you get the credentialing from these accredited universities. And so, um, you know, let's say Google wants to teach that ML class on a campus, right? Yeah. Partner with a UC and then um, Google provides the content and maybe also the instructors. Yeah. And then UC provides the uh, credentials and the TAs and things like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it might be a pretty viable option in the near future. That's not, so yeah, that sounds like a like an amazing idea. Yeah, honestly. Yeah, it, it sounds like it. It's a direct pipeline for those companies to have a talent pool. Yeah, um, directed specifically for what their what their problem mm -hmm. is. Um, while at the same time, allowing these universities, whether it's a UC or whatever, to have um, partnerships with these massive corporations. Yep. That at the end of the day, it seems if if what I'm understanding is correct, the overhead for the actual college itself isn't more than a TA in a room. Um, yeah, yeah, you can think of it that way. You know, where, yeah. um, I, like, I mean, I would have loved to have graduated with a, a certificate in like Google Analytics or mm -hmm. AdSense or anything like that. Like mm -hmm. that, little things like that would have been cool where, or um, coming out with some kind of um, design certificate as well, I think would have been pretty rad. Yep. Um, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting idea. And there are some programs like Lambda School, if you've heard yeah. of that where um, you can go and you can get this university level degree and you pay nothing. Mm. And then once you get a high paying skilled job, um, then you pay back your tuition in different installments. Yeah, so they're, they're blowing up yeah. right now. They got yeah. like a massive round of funding, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So you attract the students that really want to learn something, right? They're not here to take um, different breath classes or whatever. They really want to learn something mm. and they are incentivized to find these students um, good careers. Right, because otherwise they wouldn't be able to pay back their tuition. Yeah, it, it directly impacts them. Yep. It's it it's to their betterment to have them go into high paying jobs. Yep. Yeah, I think ultimately, like, what I'd love to see, and I think it's starting to go in that direction, is like having the university or like this education be directly connected to jobs, mm -hmm. like directly connected to these companies, and actually be in touch with what's happening out there. Yep while also being affordable and accessible. I think that combination is very important in what most people are looking for, right? So I so I actually take the kind of other-ish, we might be on the same approach, but mm -hmm. I, I would almost rather um, somebody not necessarily go in for any one particular company, like have the company solve a problem, right? right. Um, but rather look industry-wide. Yeah, as as a whole thing, where it's like, I like the idea with like Google and like companies coming in and doing stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I think that it still speaks to um, the kind of need that exists with professors and with lecturers and, mm -hmm. and these people who are within the industry, not just within the company. Yeah. Um, to address uh, the kind of gaps that exist between. Um, what could be happening in the future and what's happening right now. Right. Where it's like, I, I think even like a hybrid model where it's like you take, you can take like an introductory class with a corporation mm -hmm. um, and then you take this sort of theoretical class um, based off of what you learn in that class to show where it's going. Right. Um, not just learn what, how to exactly do what you need to be doing right now for this company, mm -hmm. but then also look at how can you stay competitive in that company and ensure that you're staying up to date with uh any growth in technology or any things that are happening right now. Yeah, um, I think that's kind of the approach that that I look at industry wide, as opposed to focusing in on on any one company's needs. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that kind of touches on 
um, the idea, Rich, that you brought up where it was like the way education was taught was like this one person who would stand in the front of the room, show what's happening yep. and what's needed and then have them go back to the factories and actually do the thing. Yep. Um, I think that y that could in, in theory be a bottleneck mm -hmm. if you just focus on like these companies teaching the courses where if you're looking industry-wide again like i said i think that opens uh, opens up that bottleneck and it kind of allows for more bandwidth yeah as a that's whole. a good point so maybe instead of one company maybe like a consortium yeah yeah. right to yeah, say here's like the tech consortium here's the marketing consortium things like that yep yep yeah i i, I think that's 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 just my two cents but who who am i you know who am <laughs> i to say what the, what the future of education is going to look like um Speaking though, I, I do want to shift over now. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up blockchain. Okay. Um, because uh, truth be told, I, I'm i in this weird space, and I think a lot of people are. I don't think I'm alone here. Right. Of, I know blockchain is important, but I don't care enough to know and exactly. learn about blockchain. Okay. So it, yeah. it's like, blockchain, cool. Future uh, also doesn't involve me, so I'm not going to learn about it. Yeah. Which I think is maybe a naive take to have, because I think I might just be like old person shakes fists and stares at cloud yeah. where it's like i i am looking at the future of not just my own industry but in multiple industries and instead of embracing it and trying to learn it i'm instead going Psh, yeah. i don't need that where i'm i literally half our job i think is us going why are they still doing <laughs> it like that why are they doing marketing this way why aren't they doing it in the whatever i can go on for a long time but um what is blockchain <laughs> let me take your example one step further and say that 80% of the people who talk about blockchain have no idea how blockchain works. Nice. Can so, I try and explain what blockchain is sure, before you ahead. do it? Go ahead. Um, so there's this chain. Okay. Val's cringing. Yeah, there's Val's this. Val's cringing right now. Val is, You're Val giving, is him <laughs> yeah, right giving, now. giving him another medical episode I'm giving him another. Oh, he's, uh, he is hurting right now. But I'm going to I'm gonna try my best. From what I know, and I literally, I, I know tiny, tiny okay. now. But it is, um, it is a, a, so I know it's a ledger. Okay. I know. Okay, am I doing good so far? Sure. There's a ledger, and it's basically this big notebook where anybody that's within, like, the blockchain that has access to, like, make transfers and stuff like that mm -hmm. can see the ledger. So if I give you a file, like, if I share something to you, mm -hmm. um, Nikhil can see that I share something to you, and they can see exactly what the thing was that I shared to you. So it's this kind of, instead of it being this, like, um, this very much like singular kind of transaction now it's becoming this kind of like open thing yep. where everyone can can confirm that that transaction occurred mm -hmm. and can confirm the two parties that did it now regard now whether or not they know the identities of the two parties is different from knowing the let's say like the location or like the ip of the actual persons because i can be like i could be me luis um, but when I do the transfer, I can do it anonymously, mm -hmm. if that's correct. Yep. So I, I could be me, but I could do it anonymously, or I could do it publicly. Is, is that also an option, or is it just entirely it's anonymous? It's just entirely anonymous. It's based on a, an address, um, okay. which is a long string of characters. And I, um, I teach blockchain in one of my classes. I forget the exact figure, but it works out to every person on Earth could have something like 100 million possible addresses. Like that's how, that's how big this string is. So yeah, you're just identified by this address. And okay. then if you want to send, let's say we're talking about um, Bitcoin, if you want to send Bitcoin or receive Bitcoin, then you have this public address that people can send to. Did I do a decent job at explaining how, at least the transactional, that's literally yeah. what I know. I just know the transactional yeah. portion of it. So let's go ahead and bring it back to the beginning. So a ledger is um, an account of records. Mm. So you might've used ledger in your accounting classes. 
blockchain is a public ledger. So traditionally, um, all our ledgers have been centralized and mostly private. So only your bank knows how much you have in your bank account. If we decentralize this, then everyone knows how much you have in your bank account. And as soon as one transaction is made on the ledger, it gets copied over to everyone who has access to the blockchain. And anyone can join a blockchain and see what has been um, created on this blockchain. So once um, a certain number of transactions have been recorded, that is recorded as a block. This block is verified. Once it's verified, which is uh, what miners do, uh, once it's verified, it gets added to the previous set of blocks, making a chain of blocks or a blockchain. So, oh, okay, okay. So if I'm understanding correctly, um, there are multiple kind of ledgers, if you want to look at it that way, um, where it's like each block has its own kind of people who can sign into that. And no, kind of so see- every every block is public, okay. but then every block exists with the previous blocks. So you could go all the way back to block one and say, what did everyone start with in their accounts? And then work your way up the blockchain to say, where are we right now? Interesting. Yeah, such that... You cannot, let's say you wanted to give me $5, but mm-hmm. you only had $4 in your account. You wouldn't be able to do that because everyone else on the blockchain would verify that, hey, Luis only has $4 and cannot give $5 to Rich. Neat. Yeah. So, I... I, I sure. Yeah. I, no, I, I think it's interesting because, like, I, I've, <clears throat> for the most part, I, like I said, that's my knowledge of blockchain is, mm-hmm. is just that, where it, where it, where I, what I said um, so like all those stuff that I've heard about blockchain and all of the very early adoptions of it have been in like financial yep. industries, yep. Um, whether that's, you know, Coinbase coming in and, and being like the, the place for, for cryptocurrency mm-hmm. um, or it's been like financial institutions when you think like, you know, uh, B of A or Chase kind of looking at blockchain as, as a way to, to implement it within their day to day activities. Yep. Um, but kind of he- hearing you go through, I, th- I think is is definitely helped me understand that it's it's more so this very like decentralized way of ensuring um, accountability. Yeah, in a way. And it's probably easier not to think about it in terms of finances, but let's take something like supply chain or logistics. Mm-hmm. Right now, with our centralized record keeping, if there's an outbreak at a certain uh, fast casual Mexican restaurant, right? Of E. coli or something like that. A certain one. A, a certain one, right? right. Someone may or may not have just had. In, in case you are looking for sponsors, I'll just say a certain one. Thank you. Um, they have to go back through their purchase records and say, uh, where did we purchase this lettuce from or something like that. Then contact the farmers and they have to look it up and all this other stuff. So it takes about two weeks to identify the root cause of an, such an outbreak. With blockchain, if everything is recorded, to the blockchain, you can find out within a matter of seconds, right? Interesting. Down to which farm it was, but not just which farm it was, like what plot of land this lettuce came from, which farmer or farmers were working on this plot of land, and you can actually identify, you know, the individual people. And this is because, uh, for many reasons, right? One, the ledger is decentralized, and again, a ledger is just an account of records. So it could be financial records, it could be where is this lettuce coming from, and then where is it going? And by everyone having access to this, um, it makes it more transparent. And then you can go verify uh, the root cause of this outbreak. 
Interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's like, <laughs> like, 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 yeah. I look. I wish that Val was here because I feel like he would be like, no, yeah, that's that's how it goes. And but we'd like, just be like, yeah, we'd yeah. be like, we'd be like, wow, mm. we'd be like, wow. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's so many questions I want to ask. But I, I, I think that for the sake of time, mm-hmm. I'm just gonna kind of uh, go down the kind of list of the stuff that I had pre, uh, pre-written as far as the questions go. Okay. Um, so the first one here is. Um, I think we kind of answered it, but I'd, I'd, I'd like to kind of go over it one more time. But um, why does everybody say that blockchain is the future um, of how we're going to do business and transfer information? Why is blockchain the future? Um, decentralization is a big one. Right now, we can identify various aspects of our lives where one company or entity controls that. And so if we can get away from that, then uh, we have more power and freedom for ourselves. In terms of the future, more on the tech side, a lot of this has to do with automation. So one example that I give in my classes is, let's say that you have solar panels installed on your house and you generate more electricity than you use. Right now, what you could do is sell this electricity back to the electric company Mm -hmm. and then they would go and sell it um, in other places. With blockchain, if you can record transactions automatically, you could sell it directly to your neighbor without having to go through this centralized electric company. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you're basically, um, it, so if, if this is kind of the theme, mm-hmm. you are removing the middleman. Yep. yep. So it, instead of it being um, you, energy company, your neighbor, now it's just pew, yep. a straight shot yep. to the direct person that you're going with. Yep. So instead of me having to have money in my in my money stored in a bank and then transfer that money to you. Mm-hmm. Now I'm transferring the money directly from me directly. to you. Yep. From underneath my mattress to now underneath your mattress. In, but it's all digital. my microwave, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I, 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 I didn't know that it was like a removal of, of the uh, yep. middleman there. Um, that made me think of something um, when you were saying this sort of removing of the middleman is what, what would something like this look like in regard because like a a big thing right now happening is this sort of um these big tech companies kind of putting their having their feet up to the fire Mm -hmm. when it comes to data privacy um and and how it's going i mean there's even a proposition right now going through california Mm -hmm. uh, i think 24 um that is uh another data privacy kind of thing right um how how would blockchain if it could um, kind of assist with this whole, you know, companies are just using our data to make money, big data argument. Like, is there is there a world where blockchain can assist with decentralizing our sort of, if you want to look at like very specific, like just cookies, for example, mm-hmm. um, is there a way where we can no longer, where companies can no longer track our online personas um, using blockchain? Not that I know of, and I don't know if blockchain would be the answer to that okay um for something like cookies cookies are a required part of the internet mm-hmm. and if you use a company's website or product they're still going to be able to track you that way gotcha yeah um blockchain is primarily more for something like records management so okay. something like a student id or you can think of a student going through four years of university saying what are the classes that i have taken and um, how does this you know, apply to my record? So instead of having a transcript, you have a blockchain of all your classes, all of your certificates, things like that. Interesting, yeah. that's cool. But then the university itself could still be able to see 
what classes you've taken. So in the same vein, the company would be able to see like, oh, you were on this page or you um, watched this video for two minutes, something like that. I don't know if blockchain can get around that. Hmm. And that also opens it up to instead of like, I'm, I'm thinking like if you have like, let's say like a resume or something like that, you mm -hmm. could theoretically have that on a blockchain yep. and an employer, if you're applying to a specific job, yep. if it's open source, can see that and very quickly um, see that you've done the things and, yep. and, and kind of verify everything in the matter of seconds. Yep. And then everyone else who has access to that blockchain can verify this information. So you can't go and put fraudulent information on your resume because then the other people who can access the blockchain can say, hey, my ledger says this. And then other people say, my ledger says this too. And so this gets into um, the 50% rule or the 51% attack rule. So you, it's very difficult to commit fraud on a blockchain unless you own 50% plus one more of the blockchain. So all of the computers connected to this blockchain mm -hmm. because it works mm -hmm. on this um, principle of trustless verification. Right. So blockchain is actually good for parties that don't trust each other, right? Hey, I don't trust you, but I can verify your information. And so if 50% of the people verify it this way, then you have kind of like a split consensus. But if you have 50% plus one, then you can say, hey, Luis actually gave Rich $5 when in reality he had $4. And then the other um, nodes on the blockchain would just have to accept that, right? Mm -hmm. Now, it's very difficult to own 50% plus one of all the nodes connected to the blockchain. It's going to take a lot of computing power. You have to control a lot of machines. Do a lot um, of mining. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's still... So really what it comes down to, it's fairly secure, but still not 100% foolproof. Gotcha. So, but I mean, it's difficult. Yeah. Very, very difficult. Very difficult yeah. Even with like, yeah, the, the only thing I can imagine that maybe would pose a threat would be like if, if a company very directly positioned all of their like super, like a supercomputer or something like mm -hmm. that or to, towards just yeah. mining. And probably just a, quite a number of supercomputers really? right to control every node connected on the internet yeah to blockchain so nice. very difficult yeah monetarily speaking the return on that would be nothing really. yeah minimal because i mean at the end of the day couldn't you couldn't you then theoretically is there only, is there only one like blockchain or could there theoretically be multiple mil blockchains millions? yeah so um you'll see this a lot with um cryptocurrencies mm -hmm. so there's bitcoin but there's also like dogecoin and then yeah. you can build your own <laughs> blockchain so val when he did studies with me he built his own blockchain as uh one of his courses did he make right. his own coin i don't know Valcoin. Val if he uh yeah. if he pulls up in a ferrari next week then his, his yeah. Valcoin traded yeah. at, a, at a penny <laughs> um yeah man i look quick little tangent did you see when when dogecoin hit a penny like during like the big boom of like bitcoin and stuff i, ju I just remember that dogecoin like started going up like crazy like in, in the middle of this pandemic yeah for some yeah. reason it was like a joke people <laughs> just started invested in dogecoin yeah um but i remember being on like our crypto on reddit and just having people be like i joke like when it was like one one thousandth of a penny people were like oh yeah i jokingly just bought like a hundred mil like a million <laughs> dogecoin <laughs> and it's like and it hit a penny and, I, and now i made like a few hundred thousand dollars and i'm like what i'm like it's like it's it's just funny like with this kind of perceived value kind of stuff especially with the cryptocurrencies um lest we forget that bitcoin hit what did it hit like twenty one thousand dollars for one coin at back one point in 20 2018 yeah, back in the day december 2018 oh nick's not here he left but i nick i remember did he buy at the peak he no no he had it and when it was hitting the peak i didn't have it but he did and i was like dude sell 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 it's gonna pop the bubble's gonna pop and he did and it, it, it popped so <laughs> I, I remember i 
reading all these articles that were like, because I had, I think, like a quarter of a Bitcoin when it was like up in the in the 17,000 and stuff like that. And um, and I remember all these people were, were like, it's going to hit 25,000. That's like when it hits 25K, that's when you have to sell it. And I was like, cool. It's like in my mind, I was like 25K, I'm out. <laughs> um, and then I remember I was in class. I, was, I think it was like 102 or 103 mm. when it popped. So I was in class doing my, my note taking, whatever it was like. And I, before I went into the class, 21, 20,000. And I left class and it was like 10,000. I was like, what the <laughs> heck happened? I was like, I looked at, I sold immediately. Immediately I sold it. I was like, gone. I was like, I can't, I'm not going to take, a, no way am I going to take more loss on this thing. If I had sold, whatever. What, whatever, man. That's fine. That's a different um, podcast. Yeah, that's a different podcast. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, so blockchain has been picking up steam mm -hmm. quite a bit for the last few years and it's relatively new right so i was like how long do you think it's going to take when the implementation of blockchain in different industries and different use cases is going to be normal and like widespread it really depends on the industry so right now in supply chain logistics they're already using blockchain mm -hmm. okay. and um, the big four consulting companies they are hiring for people to go audit blockchain mm. so blockchain already exists uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is fairly popular. Things like student records um, or records management may be less popular. And then voting, I would say, is the least popular. Okay. Yeah. Now that you bring up voting, um, I know one thing that we really wanted to focus on is how can blockchain get involved in elections mm -hmm. and voting in the future? Right. So before I came to the interview, I figured that Val was going to take the stance of... Um, you know, very pro yeah. blockchain for voting. So I wanted to come in with the opposite stance to make some, you know, good entertainment, right? right? So I am leaning towards overrated on blockchain for voting for a few reasons. Number one, blockchain is inherently public mm. and voting is inherently private. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you put your vote on the blockchain, everyone can see how you voted. Yeah. That's the, that's the entire point of blockchain yeah. is to have this decentralized ledger. So that's one problem there. Another problem is um, when you use blockchain, you have your public address, which everyone knows, and then you have a private um, key, which only you should know mm -hmm. to unlock your funds, right? So um, I use the analogy of a mailbox. Everyone can deposit things into the mailbox, but if you want to open the back of the mailbox and take out your mail, you have that one private key and you shouldn't share it at all. Mm -hmm. um, if you lose that private key, you're not able to open the mailbox and remember that happened a lot with when crypto when bitcoin was at its max yep. a lot of people lost their keys yep. on like hard drives when they put it in cold storage yep. so you have mil yeah, millions of dollars just gone and you have to remember we talked about the public address for blockchain it's like a huge string of numbers mm -hmm. this uh string gets one way hashed meaning that there's a function run on it and it only goes one way so it converts this string one way but you can't use the same hash function to convert it backwards so you get your private key by doing a one-way hash on your public key with the number of uh, strings possible per human on the planet right tens of millions or hundreds of millions if you forget your public key it's not like you can just hash a random value right you have to know your specific value so that's one problem or one of the many problems and when we talk about public addresses, if anyone can create a public address, doesn't that mean anyone can vote multiple times if you use blockchain for voting? Mm. So you have to tie that back to identity management. 
saying this random string of numbers mm. belongs to Rich and we have verified it in this way. If you don't have that verification process, I could create five addresses and vote five times. Yeah, because I, I, one thing that, I, that I've been interested in, one thing I've thought about since like hearing about those people that lost like the millions of dollars mm -hmm. during, during that whole uh, craze with, with Bitcoin was, is, is there not some way to create some kind of biometric way to kind of it, kind of go in there you know like where mm -hmm. it's like and maybe there's not because of, because of the nature of of, uh, of blockchain but creating i don't know whether it's a fingerprint whether it's uh, an iris scan whatever is like the most secure mm -hmm. most like mission impossible technology that that it can exist um to identify the person and allow them actually access to their actual public key like would would that not be a thing that could work? Because if that's the case, then that could be a way to actually verify one person, one vote. Let's say that we had this Mission Impossible technology for retina scanning and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. Then why would you need blockchain? Why couldn't you just use this technology in regular voting? Good so point. a lot of the proponents of no blockchain for voting are actually saying the more you try to solve for blockchain for voting, the more benefit you're bringing to traditional voting right to say hey let's put in retina scanning on the blockchain so that no one can you know make a fraudulent vote then just take that retina scanning technology and then move it towards traditional voting and then you don't need the blockchain and then going back to the problems um you know many people don't understand it if they don't understand it they don't want to use it right and also when we throw technology at a problem. So this is a problem I don't think we should throw technology at. There's many different problems, but when we throw technology at a problem, that is just another avenue for misinformation or voter suppression in this case. To say, hey, you know, I could reasonably say, oh, if you have an Android phone, you can't vote on blockchain. Your your vote won't count. And then there are people out there who will have Android phones and say, oh, I, I can't vote, right? Or um, think of like a phishing scheme to say, mm -hmm. um, hey, check if your vote counted go ahead and paste your private key into this website and we can tell you, right? Yeah. Then I get your private key and then I can change your votes, right? Or nullify your vote. Yeah. 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 I mean, those are, I think the fishing one is, I think the best kind of thing because mm -hmm. that's just, at, more often than not, that's how hackers get, yeah. get in. Like it's not some guy with the fingerless gloves or a person yeah. with the fingerless gloves, like breaking into the Pentagon. It's, it's usually just an email phishing thing. And then you're screwed. Yep. And then you gave your login. Yep. Um, it's a good point. So those are the cons. What would, I don't know, do you know what Val's like positives? Yeah, what could, towards? what could, uh, let's kind of conjure him, if you will. We don't have any Ouija boards lying around. But let's you'll, have to, to... you'll have to ask him maybe for a follow-up episode. But I think um, some of the pros would be uh, you have the records stored, right? So um, if everything in blockchain were to, work properly for voting then we wouldn't have things like the recount mishap of mm. 2004 mm -hmm. because everything is already counted yeah. yeah right and then not only is it counted but it's also verified by everyone who has access to the blockchain mm. right yeah well d doesn't well i don't know about the the counting in general but at least the sort of knowing someone's voting history mm -hmm. um doesn't that already sort of exist like can't like i don't know if i can see who they voted for but like if I was to look like a Nikhil, I could see that he voted in X election. Yeah. Like I can, I don't know if, I don't know how extensive that is, but I, I can't see like who you voted for, but I can see that you did vote. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can see that you have voted in an election. You can't see who you voted for. If 
we were to make this information public on blockchain, and again, blockchain is inherently public, then that is another avenue for um, voter suppression or like voting coercion. Good people might be scared to actually vote right. what they want to vote for, and if they can't vote for what they want to vote for, they're just not going to vote. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, a very interesting take on it. I mean, like I said, I, I, I came into this conversation of like uh, voting and elections mm-hmm. under this kind of idea of blockchain with like no opinions whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So uh, like hearing you kind of um, kind of give your opinion on it, it definitely makes sense to me on why it might not be the best use case for something like this. Yeah. Um, just, I'll clarify that by saying not the best use case right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So not definitely not for this election and then maybe not for the next, let's say, two to three elections. Mm. Right. Um, but maybe in the future, once blockchain gets more widely accepted right. into um, our daily lives to say, OK, now everyone has a Bitcoin wallet or something like that, yeah. mm-hmm. then we can maybe look at, OK, can this technology work? And again, if we have to introduce the Mission Impossible technologies, right, we might as well just put that into our traditional voting and then work on traditional voting to try to digitize it or modernize it. Yeah, I mean, I I would love to have just gone onto a URL, answered a few security questions and put in my voting that way. Yep. Just because for me, it's like I went straight to the registrar's office because like, I don't know, like I'm not that far from it. And I was like, I'm. I would rather just drop it off in the box that's like that someone that's going to count my vote can walk to mm-hmm. than it have to go through all these moving parts and and kind of go through it now whether or not it's just me being over cautious mm-hmm. is probably the case because yeah. i mean it you know nothing's going to happen these are very this is a very secure system that's that's been tried and true mm-hmm. um for a long time um but i think that having it be online having it be digital having it be decentralized having it be something that is public um and at least has sort of uh, some sort of technological embrace behind it is, mm-hmm. is something that i can 100 percent get behind yeah yeah because it's and that's one of the platforms um andrew young was running on mm-hmm. when he was campaigning is not so much blockchain for voting but let's modernize and digitize voting so that the we process, don't have these yeah. like fill in the bubble errors yeah plus i mean there's like a lot of just controversy and different things going on with like the mailing system and stuff like that anyway so which is why i think it is smart to go and drop off uh your ballots right to the source right to the source but yeah no so so basically short term for you it's a no but long term it's a perhaps short term it's a no from me dog um long term (laughs) maybe we'll see yeah how um, I, I'm curious, what's the tech, what, what's the, the, the point for you where you go, okay, cool, I can get behind that. Like, what, what do you think is missing? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I'm going to give you a very simple answer, and that mm-hmm. is that when people smarter than me tell me that they accept it. Yeah. yeah. Um, right now, there's a whole host of cryptographic issues. Okay. So... Um, in cryptography, they're talking about, can we make your public key also a secret? And then that way, like you are recorded on the blockchain, but then like you can't be identified and therefore your vote can't be tracked back to you, things like that. So if we could work out things like that, um, I think blockchain itself needs to be more widely adopted yeah. in the current mire. So I have a Bitcoin wallet, but 
none of my family members do, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, these family members or the people in your community are the same people who are going to be voting. So they're yeah. going to have your take on it to say, I don't understand it, so I don't want to use it, right? Or I don't trust it. Yeah. Um, it's going to take some sort of um, community adoption to say, okay, I do kind of understand how this works. I use it daily. I've paid my rent through Bitcoin, something like that. Mm-hmm. And now <laughs> I'm more trusting of using blockchain for voting. Yeah, I can't imagine trying to get my 60 plus year old parents, you know, yeah. it, into like some kind of crypto wallet yeah. like, at all. <laughs> yeah. Like I can barely like I can barely get them to like do FaceTime with me. So, yeah, yeah. I installed a crypto wallet the other week and I was just like, I don't I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm not going to do anything <laughs> Wait, right now. <laughs> which one did you, uh, did you install? I don't even remember. It's just on my phone, but mm-hmm. I've never actually like used it because I've heard like you know people getting good gains out of like bitcoin and stuff and i was like let me check it out but i was like no i don't i need to learn more about this before yeah my uh, my brother is a massive crypto dude like he's just like the government issued money is a sham mm-hmm. kind of kind of that guy you know yeah. um so he's like full-on bitcoin any all, most coins actually i think he has like uh, mainly his big thing is Ethereum-based coins. Mm-hmm. I mean, for whatever reason. I, and again, I don't know. Apparently, there's a difference between, like, Ethereum-based coins and, like, Bitcoin versus Litecoin. Like, there's... Yeah, actual, there's some differences. I don't know the, the technical details behind those differences, but... Yeah, neither. I, I, a lot of people say that Ethereum is a lot more usable for day-to-day practices, mm-hmm. but I, I guess I don't, I don't know how. I don't know how or, or why, mm-hmm. really. Um, okay, so, I, I mean, I, I think that... I, I can speak for myself. I don't know about you, Nikhil, but I'm, I'm coming out of this with a, a bit, a, I mean, a way better understanding of really what Bitcoin is, um, how it can impact like my day to day, especially in the future, um, as well as kind of its role it can play in elections. Um, because like, well, the point that I was before the conversation was just like nothing. Yeah. So I, I think it's cool that I can I, I can hold my own, I think, if someone tries to talk about Bitcoin to me now, because you mean it, blockchain? There I go again. Um, yes, I do mean blockchain, not Bitcoin. I apologize. Um, how many P's is it again? It's like the six P's or whatever. The 17 P's? Yeah, there you go. 17 <laughs> P's. Um, yeah, any, anything you want to say, Nikhil, before we move on to the next thing? No, I think the examples were great. I think that helped me too because I was pretty much in the same boat. I was like, I get this is the future and I get it's some revolutionary stuff, but I don't get why, you know? Completely. Yeah. So, yeah. You want to... Switch yes. on to the next topic. Let's go to the next thing. Um, next topic, and one that, I mean, it's in the title. It's future tech. Okay. You know, we want to talk about the future, where it's going. Um, so both Nikhil and myself have, like, two topics I want to bring up. So I'll, I'll bring up mine right now. Okay. Which is um, AR tech um, in general. It's making, like, a massive kind of push, especially in advertising, especially, like, in sports mm-hmm. um, specifically. But, like, I, I'm, I'm interested to kind of... Um, get your understanding from what you you see is like do you think that um, you know with like the with now AI being so readily available and like people actually knowing what they're doing and like knowing how to showcase data sets or how to showcase whatever in like a really fun way um, through visualizations do you think that we're entering like this really cool age of like uh, an advertising or just in, in general where AR can be like at the forefront yeah. of that yeah and I think I'm more bullish on AR than VR. Mm-hmm. VR has that hardware requirement. Yeah. And my cousin has a VR setup, and I played a game 
or a few games on it for maybe about half an hour while we were waiting for something. And then after the half hour, I was like, okay, that's cool. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you jump around in VR and you can do different things and it's like, okay, that's cool. Yeah. But if you take AR and maybe apply it to marketing, right. Um, or even just general life, go to a museum, mm -hmm. hold your phone up and mm -hmm. then get an AR display of yeah. whatever it is you're looking at. Um, let's say that you are, uh, just here in the office, you could have AR ads mm -hmm. and, um, you know, AR heads up displays. Yeah. So I think AR has more potential use for things like uh, marketing and daily life. Yeah, totally. I think the one example I remember for some reason is like when Nike did something on Snapchat mm -hmm. when I think it was this was a couple of years ago. They had like if you if you brought up Snapchat like in a Nike store, you get this like huge LeBron James wearing his new like clothing line or something like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I think I think AR over VR for me too because I actually I haven't been able to actually experience VR yet because of my glasses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sucks. Tough glasses. It sucks. Like I haven't been able to actually like wear an Oculus properly yeah. and enjoy it. So Facebook, if you're listening, please. They like, they do don't make, discriminate. They do make. They do. They don't discriminate. <laughs> don't you discriminate. Can, against they they track <laughs> everyone regardless of whether you wear glasses. Um, they they sell these like you can get prescription lenses that fit. On I'm not buying Oculus. prescription lenses well, for somebody you, else's you, Oculus. You, the fact that you just say I'm not buying prescription lenses and you're literally wearing prescription. No 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 lenses. for for somebody else's Oculus. <laughs> okay so. okay okay I get you. I'm saying if you want to get your own Oculus, there's there's an avenue for you. I don't. Um, what'd you play? An AR. I forget the title, which. You know, says bring, a lot. yeah, says, says a lot. lot. But it was this game where um, you clicked a point in the room, and mm -hmm. then your character would like jump there. Yeah. And then once you are in midair, you can hit another button to like do slow mo, like Matrix bullet time, and then like shoot guns and like shoot bows. Oh, and arrows were you playing super hot? Maybe. It was like it was yeah. like red. It was like red figures, and it was like yeah, yeah, yeah. yep, yep, super yeah. hot. Yeah, that game is a workout. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, my uh, buddy is big, big on VR, and he let me borrow his old VR mm. stuff. And Super Hot Beat Saber are the two games that I'm well, that and like yeah, Phasmophobia is like a new thing that is being played now. It's like a spooky ghost hunter game, mm -hmm. um, stuff like that. It's fun, but I always get nauseous. I can't do it. Yeah, uh, many people get nauseous, and again, a lot of people they come away with like, okay, so what? Like, yeah, like, yeah. This seriously. was fun for thirty to forty-five minutes, maybe fifteen minutes. Yeah. Um, but how is this useful in my real life? If I have to drag the headset plus the sensors plus have enough space to do yeah. this, yeah. And I, I think it's interesting to me that um, uh, Facebook is doubling down so hard mm -hmm. on VR. Um, like, and I, I get, I get their the way that they're going. Like now that the Quest Two just came out, I think it came out literally this week. The the Quest Two, mm -hmm. where it's no longer necessary to have it linked to a computer you could just plop it on uh with the with the remotes and it tracks everything and does all the things it needs to do but that still doesn't hit the inherent issue of like okay i'm still lugging around this like tiny little thing that also has a two-hour battery life like what if i have to leave at six in the morning and then i get to a place like am like i'm gonna be charging this thing i'm gonna be doing all this kind of kind of stuff yeah um whereas ar i mean best case scenario you just you can look at some stuff like even like um where you don't have to do anything what mm -hmm. there's a maybe like a pane of glass or a pane of glass in front of a um an installation or something like that and that in and of itself gives you the actual ar-ness mm -hmm. of it um or it's you with your phone swinging it around um going through it i um when i was in uh the louvre in paris they had ar stuff mm -hmm. 
where you would point it at a thing and it would kind of tell you it basically all the guides there were um uh were kind of ar-ish and by itself with this freaking like they give you a nintendo ds it's strange like an actual ds yeah they give you like they give you nintendo ds and you would open it and you would point it at the at the art piece and it would tell you all the things that you need to know about it cool it was cool that they did it with the ds but like it's uh why ds I don't know partnership with with Nintendo, I guess. Or they just they just had a bunch that weren't being sold or something, or <laughs> probably what? They, like, just, they just gave them to the Lube like, and they're like, here you go, please here take, you go. take these DSs, please get them away from us. Um, it was interesting though that they that they saw that and they wanted to kind of pursue that um, down the line instead of ha- like you could pay to get um, someone to guide you through the museum, mm-hmm. or you could pay substantially less. Actually, no, I think it was included with a ticket to just you have you have to wait in line for it. Yeah, and they would just give you this um this ds that you would lug around with you and like you would see people walking around with like a ds dangling off their off their neck it was funny but like um it was interesting and that's why i kind of think that that ar is it i I agree with you i'm way more bullish on ar than i am on vr um because yeah like it's so easy to just point a phone at something um and get the information that you need to get the extra information that you need um apple is doubling down on it their their track record's decent and i'm gonna give you a super hot take right now um with apple's huge investment into ar i think they're going to be the next company or one of the next companies to do glasses yeah yeah if you can if you can pilot ar technology on the phone and make it useful and then make a pair of glasses that aren't ugly like google glass like if apple came out with a pair of glasses i would buy them right i don't wear glasses you don't yeah i would buy them just be cool right but we we leave it to a company like Apple that makes beautiful products mm-hmm. that can get the glasses design correct yep. and bring in AR. I think that's going to be the next step. Yeah, Apple appreciates design too. Yep. So I think like I could probably see myself wearing Apple yeah. glasses. And then too. we've had, let's say, two reasonably big failures. One was Google Glass, and then the other one was uh, Spectacles from Snapchat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Apple can take all of these learnings and then build kind of their vision of you know ar through the eyes yeah um so that, that actually brings me to a really good question here from uh, benjamin gonzalez on linkedin um how can ar or vr um i think here we're going to focus more on ar but we'll touch on vr too mm-hmm. uh be used uh to help teams connect better from remote working aspect mm. and i think that cool. there's a massive um, like po- especially with AR, yeah. there's a huge amount of possibilities for uh, team collaboration now yeah. that we're ev- everyone's all remote. Yeah, there are companies working on this right now, and I don't know if it's considered like strict AR, but um, there's web conferencing technology to where the camera's pointed at you, and then what you see on the screen is as if you were looking around the same room. Hmm. So you know, it's not just a multitude of Zoom backgrounds, but everyone has the same like kind of conference room e background. And um, now with Apple and their spatial audio, right? If you're here and you're talking, I'm hearing your voice this way. Yeah. And if I turn this way, then I hear your voice still from this way. Right? Yeah. 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 So um, a lot of these immersive technologies then <clears throat> would be able to not just connect people working remotely, but um, you could perform simple medical procedures mm-hmm. um, for you know like someone in the developing country, right? You're here in Southern California, and then you can use AR, maybe also VR, to do these remote procedures. So funny enough, that also kind of takes me to my second point of my question, which was 5G, which I think that the reason why I'm so bullish on AR Mm -hmm. is the fact that 
um, the U.S. seems to be pushing heavy, heavy into 5G. Yeah. Um, whether that's all the towers that are going up just like at a blazing speed at mm -hmm. this point, um, or companies actually figuring out ways to get like, you know, whether it's like low band, high band, medium band, like having all of it available so it's not restrictive on um, distance, material, or anything. It's actually like it passes through brick. Okay, yeah. like th these issues that came up with kind of first iteration 5Gs, um, that are now kind of being addressed mm -hmm. uh, through ultra wideband. Um, the reason why I'm so bullish on AR mm -hmm. is the fact that um, the U.S. seems to be pushing heavy, heavy into 5G. Yeah. Um, whether that's all the towers that are going up just like at a blazing speed at mm -hmm. this point, um, or companies actually figuring out ways to get, like you know, whether it's like low band, high band, medium band, like having all of it available so it's not restrictive on um, distance, material. Or anything it's actually like it passes through brick okay yeah. like where it's like uh, where if i need something i need an ar experience let's say like um let's say even like for new year's mm -hmm. something like that like let's, let's think about like a very uh a simple example that's not really practical or gonna benefit a lot of people but it's just cool mm -hmm. is if you have 5g and you have this like this bandwidth to allow you could have like the uh new york ball drop right you can have that be an entirely ar experience yep. where like you are looking on your phone and you are seeing not just the ball drop maybe you're seeing this like massive like like stellar parade of, mm -hmm. of things happening all around the actual customize the actual your own message below the ball things like that exactly yeah exactly um all these kind of things are, are are becoming possible because of 5g and i know that stadiums i mean you, you think so far you think the new baltimore stadium you think the new uh, mercedes at, at dallas mm -hmm. um uh, all these stadiums, they're being built new with 5G in mind. Yep. They're not. They're not in like. They're not forethought. Like it's like it's something that's like front of mind. We need to build this because if there's 5G towers in the actual stadium, that means that people can do really really cool stuff with it. Mm -hmm. Whether that's me pointing my phone at the uh, like what Dallas did, where I point my phone at the uh, at the actual field, and I see a massive like hundred foot. Um, Dak Prescott like throwing a throwing a football and showing his stats for the game so far. Throwing an incomplete. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or or breaking an ankle, one of the two. Um, so like pointing it at your TV. No, well if you're on the field. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, if you're in physically, the physically in the stadium. Yeah. Okay, got it. Because um, if not, then they'll just show you on TV anyways, like the right. big old uh, okay. kind of graphics that already exist. Yeah, yeah. But now they're bringing that those TV graphics to you mm. as a as a person in the actual stadium. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's showing you stats, whether it's showing you. Maybe at I mean at some point it's going to be an advertisement where it's going to be like like the Lakers when they keep a team under a hundred, um, you can go to Taco Bell and get two free tacos, you know where it's like you hold your phone up to the court and it says when I mean, they keep a team under a hundred and it says like go get two free tacos now at Taco Bell or something like that yeah. if you have your AR experience mm -hmm. open you know, mm -hmm. um, yeah I think five G, um, I'm I'm bullish on both I think the quicker we adopt five G, um, the quicker AR becomes very, very viable. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, what, what's what's your kind of take on, on the whole 5G uh, stuff and, and everything like that? 5G, so this gets a little bit kind of political. And again, I'm fully unqualified for this opinion. Oh, go for it. But in the past 20 years, I would say the US has gotten kind of um, hesitant or slow to adopt and create new technologies. So in the past 10 years, I would say uh, countries like China are beating us in AI, right? Mm -hmm. And this is not uh, a hidden fact. This is probably well known. Mm -hmm. So now I think the U.S. is starting to realize, hey, we need to catch up and like,
be a leader again in technologies. And one way that we can do that is going to be through 5G. And uh, something that I teach in my classes is things like self-driving cars. We have the technology for self-driving cars right now. If you have a robot vacuum in your home, you have a self-driving car. Yeah. Roberto is, yeah. is our maiden name, yeah? And, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's a self-driving car here in the studio. Um, the only thing or one of the major things limiting self-driving cars um, operating you know, fully humanless right now is there's no bandwidth to collect all that data. Right. So typically what happens is um, you see the, the cars going around. There's like a, a backup driver and then like some person on a laptop. They're all collecting data from these sensors and they do some practice runs. They go back to HQ. This data gets downloaded um, from the laptop to whatever server, process it and then send it back up to the sensors. And once we get 5G, um, we can move towards edge computing. So putting computing at the edge of the network instead of more in the central part of the network, mm -hmm. the edge of the network being in the car itself mm -hmm. or in the stadium itself, something like that. And yeah, one of the big limitations is, you know, bandwidth. So yeah. 5G is going to really help with that. Yeah. I think this all like, <clears throat> this all ties into what I guess is the next step of like the customer experience. And this is a term that I think Deloitte coined called the human experience and something that they're really trying to push is basically taking like the concept of like human centered design and a combination of like all these different new future emerging tech such as like AI and like cameras, sensors, microphones and all that stuff to this all ties into what I guess is the next step of like the customer experience. And this is a term that I think Deloitte coined called the human experience and something that they're really trying to push is basically taking like the concept of like human centered design and a combination of like all these different new future emerging tech such as like AI and like cameras, sensors, microphones and all that stuff to essentially create something that understands the user's moods and you know reacts in a certain way and I think a really good example I saw was of like an air traffic controller um, having a really long day having to manage a bunch of different emergencies and stuff like that mm -hmm. and she's wearing like some like brain sensing earbuds um so i think we're seeing like like a like a push towards that and i think at the same time um companies that implement this stuff they can really create a positive experience for all their employees and their workers and stuff by being able to analyze their cognitive data and stuff although that sounds a little creepy but analyze their cognitive data to create an environment that's the healthiest and safest mm -hmm. and more most productive yeah. for them so what's your take on that i think this is like we're starting to see a lot more of it and i think it's going to keep moving forward but what do yeah, you think you see a lot of it now lexus and a lot of luxury car manufacturers mm -hmm. they have um, driver sensing technology and i yeah. believe lexus actually calls it a human experience mm -hmm. to say if they notice maybe your head kind of nodding like you're maybe sleepy yeah um can they change the temperature yeah. right cool it down a little bit wake you up um mm -hmm. play a different playlist something like that yeah and once we have these technologies built more into the workplace we can say, you know, kind of like right now what we do is you walk into a room and you say, hey, Siri, hey, Alexa, turn on my lights, things like that. We can make this completely seamless yeah. to say, go ahead and set up my computer this way, um, turn the lights to this level, turn the temperature to this level. Um, way back in the day, uh, there was a rumor, don't know if it's true, but Bill Gates, um, when people like didn't know what was in his home, they said that he had um, like a, a blank canvas and the canvas would di would display art 
that the specific person liked depending on who walked into the room really and this was 1990s early 2000s so like before any of these um, smart canvases existed so with that sort of technology you can create a human experience Mm -hmm. right it's no longer just a user experience Mm -hmm. but it's your entire humanness right so vision sense smell everything like that yeah i mean that's huge just for the hospitality and tourism industry yeah like that technology is like you know, I, I've said the story before, but like, you know, I walked into an Ace Hotel and it was like, oh, there's my name on yep. the screen and yep. there's like all this kind of stuff. And like, you know, more like the Four Seasons, like the Ritz, they're known for going above and beyond that, where it's like when you walk into the room, the temperature is exactly what you want it to be. Mm-hmm. The pillows are the materials that you want it to be. The sheets are what you want. The yep. treats inside the bar, everything is catered towards you. I think um, with this kind of human experience at the, at the forefront, it allows even for not just those like four star, five star hotels and um, resorts to be at the forefront of this, mm-hmm. but it then allows for more budget kind of places to go above and beyond um, and really customize each, each and every experience to you, the, the actual person, um, when, they're, when they're going through the, the whole funnel, the whole system of, of the thing. Yeah, and you'll see an analog process of this in a lot of Airbnbs. When you book an Airbnb, you can message the host and they'll say, hey, why are you visiting? Um, what are your interests and things like that? So you walk into an Airbnb and it may not relate to maybe the temperature or whatever, but maybe there's a booklet of materials hmm. saying, hey, welcome, Luis, right? Welcome, Nikhil. You mentioned you like hiking. Here are a list of my favorite hiking spots. Or you mentioned you like food. Here are um, a list of my restaurants, right? And so you feel um, that the experience is tailored you yeah and then you say okay this is a really great experience yeah i actually just booked an airbnb for my we're celebrating my dad's birthday in big bear Mm -hmm. next weekend and i had to go through that like why are you booking it i've never seen that before so now i'm expecting like a birthday card for my dad (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and wouldn't that be cool if you know so they probably can't do like birthday cakes anymore but um wouldn't it be cool if they just had like a cake and little card to say hey welcome nikhil and family and dad um, happy birthday. Enjoy your stay in Big Bear. Yeah. That'd be yeah. awesome. Yeah. I'll, I'll report back. <laughs> yeah. L- let me know. If you get a cake, don't eat it. Don't, <laughs> don't touch that cake. Or just spray it down with Lysol yeah. and eat it. One yeah. of the two, right? You have options. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think, honestly, um, all the stuff that we went over was, like, super insightful and, and something that is at the forefront of, of kind of everything right now. I'll be honest with you. Like, especially, like, information systems kind of the stuff that, that you're that you're doing your kind of bread and butter it touches really on every aspect mm-hmm. of a lot of stuff like everything that's happening right now is going towards that where like you have to at least have some knowledge of it mm-hmm. regardless of, of of um of what major you are who, what you're doing what your job title is because if you don't you're just going to get left in the dust and you're going to get replaced hopefully not by ai but hopefully by someone who knows um kind of what's happening yep and what's going on here. Um, but I think, I mean, as far as the questions go, I think we're all wrapped up. Are you good on your end? Yes, sir. Sweet. Um, yeah, that, that's really it for the talking points for us. Um, this is usually the point where, where Val does his clothes off, but you know, alas, <laughs> he's dead. <laughs> he's fine. He's dead. Um, no, but what I, I, do, I do appreciate you coming on and explaining to us um, what's happening right now in tech and what what you're doing at UCR um and I think I speak for the both of us when I say like we we're excited um 
for the changes coming to UCR and the mm-hmm. stuff that you're kind of pushing. Um, but also we are very sad, angry, and resentful that we are not there <laughs> to be a part of those changes. Yeah, there's a lot of really good changes happening to the school right now where I'm just like, man, yeah, just yeah. like you should have graduated Five, like two or three ago. years later, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, uh, unfortunate, but it's, it's good for the, it's, for it's, the campus. Yeah, because yeah. we're still connected to the school and stuff and, you know, having these conversations with professors like yourself. So yeah. it's exciting to see, you know, what's happening and it's, it's it feels good to stay connected. And, yeah give back in some sort of way to the university. And Val's helping me with changes, so you'll hear, you know, more about them from him. We usually just ignore them. So. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> Heidi's helping me with changes. Oh, we, so we don't ignore her. So. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah we'll hear Definitely do not we'll ignore Heidi. To, yeah, we'll, hear, we'll listen to Heidi before we listen Heidi. to Val. <laughs> well, absolutely. Um, well, thank you again yep. um, for everything. Uh, where we're going to close off this show is the way that we've been closing off all of our shows recently, um, which is... Uh, we're going to kind of ask you to go into your failure story. Um, the reason we do that is because I, th- I think Val, Nikhil, and myself, and I think all of us on the team here agree that um, with social media and kind of the way that it's going, there's this big push towards just showing off the good, the, only the, the outcomes as opposed to how you actually got um, to that result. Um, so what we hope to do with these failure stories is to show that um, failure is a thing that happens always mm-hmm. always and forever will continue to happen um it's not something that necessarily defines who you are but it does uh impact how you get to your end point right um so so that's kind of why we want to push these failure stories so without further ado i'll, I'll give you the, the platform to speak on that okay so when i was thinking about this failure story um i have failed many times and anyone in this chair or anyone in this room has failed many times so i was wondering what is a special failure story that I can share? And so I decided to bring one that not many people know. Actually, it's just uh, me, my parents, and then maybe like two other people in this world. Back in high school, I tried out for the golf team. And back then, I was like a decent player, but I had never competed before. So the most I've done was maybe like a charity tournament, which wasn't um, you know, that stressful. So I go into tryouts, it's my first tryouts ever, and immediately, like, mentally, I'm just shut down, right? There's a difference between you facing good competition and knowing that you belong there, and then you facing good competition and then, like, thinking that you don't belong there, right? So already, my game is off, we haven't even started yet. And um, so we start, and I'm just not doing well. If you are familiar with golf, low score is good, and there's a score called par, which is like the number of strokes you should take for the hole. And I was one or two strokes over par on each hole. So by like hole three, you know, it's like kind of pointless for me to be at tryouts because I'm not gonna do well um, coming back from that. Yeah. The first dagger of failure came around maybe hole three or four. So in golf, for both safety and for etiquette, you want to stand behind the line of the ball when the person's hitting so that um, the person doesn't hit into you. What I noticed around hole three or four is that the people in my group, the other three people, when I would hit, they would just keep walking to the point where like, you know, we don't care what Rich does because like he's, he's just so bad, right? We'll just keep walking. And then, you know, he's probably not going to hit it straight anyway. So we can just walk to where our balls are and, hit, and he won't hit us. Okay, great. So um, hole five, six, seven, still one or two over every hole. And the second dagger failure came in um, at hole seven, 
where uh, I was making my last putt, or hopefully my last putt, and I putt it and the ball stops about two to three inches from the hole, right? Looked like it was gonna go in and then just kind of broke at the end. If I had made that putt, I probably would have had enough energy and motivation to finish the round and at, at least, you know, um, complete the round. But I missed the putt and I was just so beaten down the entire round that like everything just left me. And I did something that uh, you should not do in competitive golf. I went over to the ball and I picked it up. Um, in, in golf, they call this like a gimme. And if you agree with your teammates or your, your playing partners, hey, this is close enough, you don't have to finish the putt, you can get a gimme. But in competition golf, you need to finish every putt. And there's one guy in the group, he was half being serious and he was also known for being a dick. So he's like half being a dick. He's like, hey, you know you need to finish out the hole, right? And I mumbled something like, you know, I'm just wasting everyone's time here, right? I'm, I'm not gonna make the team. I can't come back from eight or nine over. Um, it, it doesn't matter if I finish this putt. Um, I, to this day, I don't remember what happened the next two holes. I don't remember playing those holes. I don't remember signing my scorecard. Um, I, I finished the round in that I, I made it back to the clubhouse, but I, I don't remember what I did. And back at that time, I did not have my driver's license yet. So my mom was waiting in the parking lot to pick me up. I get to the car and she's like, hey, how'd it go, right? And I was like, mom, just drive like very fast, very far away from here, right? I, I cannot be here right now. And just ultimate failure, like everything left my body. And before I move on to the takeaways, let me kind of put a bow or a, uh, a knot in this story and say, you know, then I went back and practiced the entire next year and then made the team the following year, right? At the following tryouts. When we look at failure, there are three primary ways that I look at failure. Number one is, do I not know how to do something? So did I fail because I didn't know how to do something? Number two is, should I have done something else first? Did I skip a step? Did I miss a step? The third way is, is it just simply not meant to be? So if you um, wear corrective lenses, you can't be like an astronaut or a fighter pilot, right? It's just not meant to be no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do. So when you come out of a failure and everyone here or listening will fail, right? When you come out of failure, look at the failure through one of these three lens to say, do I not know how to do something, right? Do I not know how to mentally compete at that level? Did I need to do something first or is it just not meant to be? And then when you go through this, then my takeaways from this failure is number one, resilience over strength. You're going to be broken down many times in your life. And if you think about it in terms of strength, you eventually lose strength, right? Hey, this barbell has 500 pounds of plates on it. You can't deadlift it because you don't have enough strength. But if you can think about it in terms of resilience, then you can say, how do I bounce back from this, right? Number two is you have to do the work no matter what you do. If you did the work and you failed, that is different than you not doing the work and you failing, 
right? So in everything that you do and everything that I tell my students to do is just simply do the work. If you fail, then look at failure through one of those three lenses and see what else you need to do and then come back and try again. So um, before, you know, two minutes ago, only my parents and then the three people in my group knew about this failure story. I'm sure the whole team heard about it later, but uh, yeah, I wanted to bring in this story to say uh, this was my probably my first biggest failure, right? And one of the failures that kind of led me to think about, okay, how do I approach failure from here on out? Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Yeah, I great story. Fantastic story. Yeah, I, I think it, it shows, and you, you bring up the great points with that resilience mm -hmm. and knowing if, like you said, if this is something where like I am predestined to not be able to do something like this, like, you know, the fighter, fighter pilots yeah. not being able to do it because of corrective lenses. Yeah. Um, is this something where I lack the strength mm -hmm. and know-how? Um, I, I think that's a really good point yeah. when it comes down to uh, to failure and being able to identify um, not just, oh, I failed, mm -hmm. but instead being able to take a step back, look inward and, and say, okay, why did I fail? Right. Um, where Was the deck stacked against me? Um, or did I, in a, in some way, shape or form, commit some sort of self-sabotage? Mm -hmm. Um, through maybe not practicing or, or not kind of putting the time in for something like that. Yeah. Um, anything from Unico? Yeah, I think the point you made about resilience mm -hmm. is like definitely huge. I think, yeah, everyone goes through failure, but if you don't, if you if you take the effort to try and learn from like what went wrong or didn't go well the first time, then chances are you'll be able to succeed, succeed the second time if it's meant to be. Mm -hmm. And I've dealt with that many, many times. Yep. Um, my own failure short state, uh, story that I shared was along the same boat. So I, to I totally understand it. And yeah, thank you so much for those three points and sharing everything. Yeah, thank glad you to be that. here. Yeah, it went from about five or six people knowing that story to now, theoretically speaking, the whole internet. The whole, the entire yeah, the internet, The entire the YouTube, yeah. yeah. All of it. Um, thank you for sharing that, honestly. Like, yeah. that, that's a cool story. And, and I think it, it touches on the main point of this whole um, segment which is just like you're gonna fail figure out how to be better yeah like it's not it's never like you failed and then that's it it's mm -hmm. over it's never to that yeah no one would all this technology that exists today wouldn't exist if that was the case yeah it's you fail you get up and you kind of keep trucking on and you figure out why you failed um so thank you for that um and thank you to everyone who is watching um right now on twitch and on linkedin um that actually concludes the uh kind of may majority part of the show was that what is that what we're calling this what are we calling this Nicole? this is the the main part of the show yeah this is the main part so of don't the show. leave yet because we are transitioning to our fun segment called oh, i'm looking at the wrong camera over under <laughs> <laughs> um where luis will be asking us some pretty great questions and professor rich and i are gonna um let you know in our opinion, if they're overrated or underrated. So we're going to take a few minutes, five, 10 minutes or so to yes. transition. So don't leave. We're still here. Also, we got top of the show and bottom of the show. Go vote. Go vote. Go vote, please. Um, follow us on all of our social medias. Um, After Logic Media, I think on, on pretty much everything, whether it's uh, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, and the Facebooks. Um, follow us on everything. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, if you are on Apple Music, please leave a review. It helps us out a bunch. Um, if you're watching on Twitch, make sure to give us a follow. And if you are on LinkedIn, um, same, please give us a follow, give us a like. Um, 
and kind of keep up with what we're doing on the day to day because a lot of uh, a lot of really exciting stuff to say the least is coming to not just uh the brew and the, this platform in general but uh to uh free logic as a whole yep um okay we're, we're gonna cut out right now thank you so much please stick around if you can um like Nikhil said the fun part of the show is coming thank you for watching Thank you for tuning into The Brew. I hope you enjoyed this episode and tell us what you thought about our conversation in the comments below. If you guys like our content, make sure to follow us on our various social media platforms and we will see you all next time.